Good morning. One thing we're adding to the service, we're having, uh, we're focusing on one of the commitments each Sunday and what we're doing to kind of flesh that out. Individuals come up and they give a testimony to um, answer the questions, what does a specific commitment mean and what does it mean to them? Mark, come on up. He's going to talk about God deals gently with us. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mike. As most of you know, I am a recovering alcoholic. I drank up 10 years of my life. During those years, I naturally did all of the things that drunks do. I broke a lot of laws. I hurt a lot of people. I broke a lot of hearts. I did a lot of damage. As a result, I experienced overwhelming attacks of fear, guilt, shame, remorse, resentment, self-pity, depression, and humiliation. I have always believed in justice and actually longed for it. I think the first words out of my mouth as a kid was, it's not fair. It wasn't good enough that mom gave my brother and me M&Ms. Then we had to count to see who got more. Even Stephen, fair's fair, share and share alike. I thought that the world could be a happy place as long as everybody got exactly what they deserved. I tried to avoid pain by avoiding punishment. I believed that so long as I followed all the rules, then nothing bad should ever happen to me. Thus, at an early age, I became a perfectionist. I was the kid who always buttoned the top button on, on his shirts, who used a ruler to draw the line at the bottom of a math equation, who always did his homework, who always got straight A's, who never broke the rules. It wasn't that I wanted to be good, I just feared the punishment for being bad. Nobody's perfect, but that didn't stop me from trying. I always resented my parents and my teachers for pushing me so hard with their impossible expectations. I never understood that most of the pain I felt was self-inflicted through my own lower nature. Uh, uh, if I did make a mistake, I became my own judge, jury, and executioner. I would beat myself up mentally and suffer greatly from guilt. As a result, my world became very small because I could never afford to take risks or try new things. Also, I became very harsh and judgmental toward others. If I had to live by these restrictions, then it was only fair that you should have to also. When I discovered alcohol at the age of 13, I felt a freedom that I didn't know was even possible. I learned that beer dissolves guilt on contact. I didn't have to be perfect anymore. I didn't have to be right anymore. I didn't have to be smart anymore. I didn't have to be good anymore. I didn't have to be me anymore. I was raised to be a Christian, but the Sunday school I attended had those familiar Old Covenant Ten Commandments on every wall. 
Thus, I just had more rules to keep in order to avoid more punishment. Religion certainly did not take a load off. It just piled a bigger load on. So long as I viewed God as part of the problem, I could not see him as my only solution. Given the lifestyle I led for many years, I certainly did not deserve mercy, nor did I desire it. On the contrary, I fully expected to pay for my sins. That is how my complex system of values worked. With this prideful, self-reliant attitude, I was truly both helpless and hopeless. So what happened? I don't know. (laughs) But something happened. And it wasn't me that did it. Basically, what I remember is that God dealt gently with me. He sent people who dealt gently with me. His gentle spirit flew underneath my radar. Instead of receiving judgment and punishment, I received grace and mercy. Instead of treating me like a bad person, I was treated like a sick person. The weight of the world on my shoulders was removed. I met Mike, and he taught me how and why perfect love casts out fear. It all starts with God taking punishment off the table. Once that is accomplished, then we can truly approach the throne of grace with confidence. I have not taken a drink of alcohol nor used any drugs now in over 37 years. I am living proof that a change of beliefs will lead to a change of behaviors. That, in short, is my story. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Here are the symptoms. You try to identify the disease. Try to identify the problem. I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. What's this guy's problem? He can't turn intention into action. Wants to do the right things, just can't pull it off. We would assume probably it's a Maybe an intellect problem. He doesn't know what he should know. Or an emotion problem. Doesn't have the right feelings. Maybe a will problem. He doesn't desire it enough. Again, you probably recognize these words. They come from Paul in Romans chapter 7, verse 18. Some believe that Paul is not writing as a Christian at this time, but that's not true. He is. He's reflecting back on understanding the understandings that ended up occurring to him with respect to his problem and the solution. And what he says, again, in Romans 7.15, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. 
I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want, I keep on doing. In order to treat a problem, you need to diagnose it accurately. If you don't diagnose a problem accurately, you cannot treat it effectively. If you just throw medicines at a condition that you don't clearly understand, the chance of you being treated properly and healing are nil. We really do need to understand what the problem is. And again, is it, is it a lack of knowledge? Is it a lack of love? Is it a lack of desire? Fortunately, uh, Paul comes to the place where he's able to identify the problem. And here's what he says. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And he says in Romans 7.20, Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And when he, had, when he tries to identify, when he does identify the problem, what he says it is, is sin living within, which is kind of strange. He doesn't blame God, okay, but he doesn't blame himself either. He doesn't do what he wants to do. He does what he doesn't want to do. And he doesn't blame himself. What's the problem? He says the problem is sin living within. And just let's pause and consider that a minute. Is it about the absence of self-control? And what Paul suggests, it's not an absence of self-control. It's the presence of sin control. That's what he says. In this passage, sin is not an act. It's a power. It's a king, capital S, with a crown on its head. Sin is like a slave owner. And what Paul understands, he understands being the slave. So when we think of sin ends up getting lost in translation. Um, for Paul, sin is a controlling power, not a controllable choice. Now, there are, there is a sense to which sin is an act that we do. When we selfishly grab, do, make something happen, we do sinful acts. But what Paul is pointing to here is sin is not just a controllable choice. What he's saying, it's a controlling power. It's a, it's a controlling force. In Paul's eyes, sin is not merely something which we choose. He's suggesting that sin is something that chooses us, masters us. Um, it says in Genesis 4, 6, and 7, it gives an interesting picture of sin. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. But you must master it. Would you agree with me? Sin being depicted in this way, it's not a choice. Sin is waiting, lurking. 
And what God says to Cain is it's about to pounce. And what sin pounces on him, he won't have the ability to control sin well, be in control. So we have it. Sin is a controlling power, not a controllable choice. What we're going to look at, we're going to look at some words that are lost in translation. Sin, we're looking at today. We'll look at gospel next week. And then we'll look at judgment. And then we'll look at salvation. But we have to start here. Before we understand why God solve things the way he did, we need to understand clearly what the problem is. And our problem is that we deal with sin, sin living within, not just our choice, but sin as a controlling power. Jesus died so that we could be rescued from the jaws of sin. The problem is that until we're aware that we have been held captive, we really can't understand what Jesus did. And that's why we have to begin here. We can't solve a problem that we diagnose incorrectly. Our problem is not ultimately a problem is that we lack control. The problem that we deal with is not the absence of self-control. It's the presence of sin control. The problem is spiritual slavery, sin living within. This is our spiritual problem. Would you agree with me? And this is a little bit controversial, but if this is the problem, if sin is a controlling power, Free will is a fantasy. Now, we can choose to do this or that. The thing we can't choose, we cannot choose not to be controlled by sin. If you talked to a first century slave and said, what do you want to do? A first century slave would say, why are you asking me that? I have to do what my master tells me to do. If we talk to that first century slave and said, surely you have self-will, you have free will. And he would say, well, within very narrow margins, I can't do what I want to do. A first century slave didn't have free will. And when Paul is describing his relationship with sin, that's kind of what he is inferring. And so free will is a fantasy, and slavery is a reality. Um, as a Pharisee, Paul would have been taught that we are indwelt by a good impulse and a bad impulse. In Hebrew, it's yetzer hara and yetzer hatov. Yetzer hara. The evil inclination, Yetzer Hatov, the good inclination. And he would have taught and believed that our job is to nurture the Yetzer Hara, I'm sorry, Yetzer Hatov, that's the good inclination, nurture that, and control the Yetzer Hara, which is the evil inclination. I found a little bit of a statement about what rabbis would have taught as the 
expression of Judaism that would have existed. And I think you'll find these words familiar. I think it's kind of the way we think about managing ourselves. The rabbis universally teach that the yetzer hara must be controlled and trained to follow the law of God. So what he's describing, you have to train yourself to follow the law of God and not the evil inclination. Humans need to cultivate its opposite, the Yetzer Hatov, which is the good one, by studying the scriptures, following the commandments, engaging in prayer, helping one's fellow man and other good works. And so what they're describing is, so you try to manage the evil inclination by turning to the Bible and you nurture the good inclination by studying the scriptures and do it. And again, all these things are really good things. However, um, when Paul becomes a follower of Christ, he seems to change his tune and he doesn't focus on the kind of solutions that he was raised to nurture. With respect to the law's influence, which he would have learned what you need to do in order to control the evil inclination and nurture the good one, you need to immerse yourself in the scriptures. And again, that's a really good thing. And he would have learned to do that. And yet what he ends up doing is coming to some, and I'll, I'll use my, uh, an adjective carefully, shocking, shocking realizations concerning the law's influence. Here's what he says, Romans 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So what Paul understands, what the law is good at is making us conscious of sin. The law draws lines, and when we cross those lines, we are conscious that, oh man, you know, God told me to do X, I did Y, I'm a sinner. That's what the law is really good at. It's not good at helping us find our way on a path to do what is right. The law is really good at helping us see with our own eyes, I transgress, to make us conscious of sin. So when law is doing what it's good at, it will cause you to be conscious of crossing a line. He goes on, the law was added so that the trespass might increase. And again, in the Greek, increase means increase. That's a strange thing. And prior to Paul saying this, I dare say, I don't think anyone would have, would have ever said that. So I want you to think about this. And it was being taught at the time, and he would have learned, you put the law in your mind to control yourself. And what he's saying here is that the reason why God put the law in place was not to control transgression, but to actually stimulate it. 
And that's confusing, but that's what Paul understands. He backs up and he says, the problem is not what I thought it was. The very thing I relied on to control the problem was creating the problem. That's strange. And what he says, for apart from law, sin is dead. So, if you want to empower sin, go under law. Cultivate, and again, all of us struggle with this. We struggle with the notion that God blesses us when we behave and curses us when we disbehave. To the degree that that's our orientation, we will become conscious of sin, trespass will increase, and sin will, rather than be deactivated, will be activated. Um, So we really have to focus on a problem. And the way we see it, this is our problem, sexual immorality. Again, these are problems. Impurity, sensuality, idolatry and sorcery, enmity, fights, strife. That's the problem, jealousy and envy, fits of anger. I've got to control my anger. I've got to control my envy. I've got to stop thinking impure thoughts. Rivalries, dissensions, divisions. I have to stop being such a difficult person to get along with. Drunkenness and orgies. I've got to stop doing stuff like that. That's the problem. And these are problems. They're not the root of the problem. They're the fruit of the problem. The root of the problem, we have to look in a different direction. Paul says in Romans 7, 7 and 8, I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, again, sin seizes the opportunity. It's not just an act here, is it? Sin has a life of its own. It's a controlling power. And what it indicates, sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me every kind of covetous desire, for apart from law, sin is dead. Um, The image here is that when the law says, do not covet, then what ends up happening is that we end up trying to control that. And as we are controlling that, we are being managed, controlled by sin. And so what ends up happening, you remember, uh, used to be a place downtown, and now it's a bank, I think. Remember Gigglebees? Gigglebees, you know, they had the guy, the thing, the riding around on the thing, you know, delivering the pizza, and so they, and they, had, they had this game, Whack-A-Mole. Remember the Whack-A-Mole game? You know, you had this mole come up, and they have a mallet, and so you bounce off, and so, you, you know, you're just whacking mallets, and, and that seems to be the sense for what we end up doing when we control sin. We might get rid of coveting, well, maybe we don't covet that, but then we'll covet something else. And we end up having to smash these expressions of sin. But it's, it's not really very effective because, again, it says here, and it's a 
provocative statement, but I believe it's true. I think this is what Paul came to. The law stimulates the very behaviors it prohibits. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about that. The law stimulates the very behaviors it prohibits. Our solution to dealing with things that we really do need to control, we rely on self-control. Trying to control behaviors using the law is exactly like trying to control a grease fire with water. It's exactly like it. It's the most natural thing. If there's a fire in the kitchen and you don't know it's a grease fire, what you're going to do, get some water and we're going to throw the water on the grease fire. And you, you know, you understand what happens when you throw water on a grease fire, it spreads it. To throw water in a grease fire spreads it. You know what happens when you throw law on sin? It increases it, spreads it. Now, it doesn't mean you'll do the same thing. You might be able to control this behavior, but then you've got these moles going up elsewhere, and then you have to whack them all over here, and you might go from this to that, to that to this. You cannot defeat sin by controlling it. Because it's controlling you, and you're not strong enough to push its mastery over. You can't. That's what Jesus has to do. That's what he has to do. That's why he's the savior. What's Paul's diagnosis of the problem then? And if you focus on it, here's Paul's diagnosis of the problem. Again, I'm going to read. This is kind of what the old covenant, this is the bare bones of it. If you fully obey the Lord your God, and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I am giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. There's not a mistake here. I'm not blaming God because Paul didn't. Your issue, it's not really yourself and it's not God. It's sin as a power. And what sin is catalyzed by is this. You're blessed if you obey, and you're cursed if you disobey, to the degree that, and it is our default operating system, sin gets strength from this. So if this is the problem then, what's the solution? Self-control? Mm -hmm. Read more. Read the Bible more. Pray more. Give more. Serve more. That sounds like what the rabbi said. There has to be something different. You know what the solution is? It's surprising. 
This is the solution. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness. And we talked about this, be helios. That's literally what the phrase is. Helios means gracious, favorable, benevolent, merciful. I will be gracious, benevolent, favorable, and merciful to their unrighteousnesses and remember their sins no more. You know what you're looking at? And it's strange. This overcomes sin as a power. Now, you might not find the behaviors will leave right away, but you give it time, little by little. The understanding of this will start to change your heart. Little by little. It's not going to happen fast you'll find yourself changing and dealing more gently with yourself, more gently with others. I like the way Mark put that. He just, what ends up happening is end up being able to breathe a little bit and your heart becomes softer. How do you apply this solution? First, understand it. What God says I assume responsibility to put my law on your heart and the heart of your children. In the Old Covenant, parents were directly responsible to put the law on the hearts of their children. You know what God says, parent? Again, it doesn't mean that you don't do anything. God says, I will put my law in their mind and write it on the hearts. And if God assumes responsibility... You know what that means? If God assumes responsibility, that absolves you of ultimate responsibility. Would you agree? We can't have two people be responsible. Is God responsible? And here's my question. What if you believed that? I want you to think about that. What if we could believe that more? Some people are afraid and they'll say, geez, Mike, if I believe that, I'd do all kinds of rotten things. I think Mark would indicate that's not the way it works. It's not the way it works. It feels like what will happen, but it's not what happens. You know what you end up doing? <laughs> Get this. Got a secret. You end up loving him. <laughs> Imagine what a change that would make. And it does. That's what happens. He says, I will put my law in your mind and write it in your heart. I'll cause you to know me. What happens if you believe that? You know what God says? He assumes responsibility and he will cause you to know him. Some of you are saying, oh, I'm not going to be able to know him. I just don't have it in me. I'm not disciplined enough. I'm not controlled enough. I, I can't do the things that I know God needs me to, to do before he... Hey, wait a minute, that's the wrong covenant, isn't it? Yeah, well, God says, I'm going to cause you to know me. And it's not on your shoulders, it's on his. And 
He says, I will be Helios to your unrighteousnesses. I want you to think about what it would mean if we could believe that more deeply. You know what he's saying? Remember that thing you did last week? You know the thing. The thing that you hope won't be put on a highlight reel, and by the way, it will not when you get to heaven. We won't have a highlight reel of, you know, great sins of 2021. Oh boy, don't do That's at the end of COVID. Oh no, you're not going to show that. No, that's not going to happen. Because he, what he says, I will be Helios about your, I will remember your sins no more. I don't think God is not keeping track. What if you believe that? You're saying, oh, Mike, I do whatever I want. Not true, Mark, is it? You'd imagine. That's not the way it works. You end up saying, you know what? I'm not as harsh with myself. And therefore, I don't need to be as harsh towards others. Little, slowly, gradually. How do you apply this? Um, Here's a way to... We talk about these, it's a way to put it in a form. When you do something, your impression will be, you know, that thing you did last week or the week before, you know, that thing. Um, The assumption is that it really changes God's face. You know, God must have begun like this. I hope you do it. No, don't. (sighs) I talked about my dad had this great face. He could... If it's perfect, I still can't master it. But it has something that you have to make a sound and you have to shake your head and you have to sigh at the same time. And I'm not good at it, but my dad was great at it. (laughs) Great at it. And it sounded, it looked a little bit like this. (laughs) Something, something like that. Again, that's, that's a poor, but what it, what it reflects is a change of face. And here's what the new covenant suggests. And it's shocking. Once you picture God's face before you did that thing, you know the thing. And I want you to picture his face afterwards. And here's the surprising thing. It didn't change. Didn't change. You know what we would do to try to apply this covenant is when you do something wrong, Talk to God about it. God, I did that thing, and I I really don't like doing that. But you're still in me, because he says he'll put the law in our hearts. You're still with me, because he says, I'll be your God, and you'll be my son or daughter. There's goods ahead of you, because he forgives our wickedness and remembers our sins no more. You know what that means? Guaranteed. Apply that when you talk to God about what you do wrong. And I'd say every time, God, I'm sorry I did that thing. Thank you that you're still in me. You know what that is? That's a covenant promise. And God never breaks a covenant. He set aside the old covenant and replaced it with the new covenant. And so what that means, these are bulletproof. And now the challenge is for us to believe them. Let's say, God, you're still in me. God, you're still with me. Good's still ahead of me. Guaranteed. Once you think about that thing you did, think about saying, God, I did that thing. Thank you that you're still in me. 
Thank you that you're still with me. Thank you that good's still ahead of me. Guaranteed, little by little, you run that in your head, and it will transform you. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for good news. Thanks for Paul. I can't understand how well, I I guess I can, Jesus, you helped him to see. He had to have help to see what he saw. No one at his time understood what he understood. The very thing people were using to put out the fire was spreading it. Law, and Paul was able to see it, and now we have his words. Would you help us understand and apply these words so that we could become more Christ-like? In Jesus' name, amen.